Thank you for tuning in to the Sunset Church of Christ podcast. You're listening to a sermon that was preached on June the 7th, 2020, regarding the passage, Consider One Another. Well, I'm really excited that we get to come back uh, the time that we lost in the last few months, or at least the time where we had to abbreviate things, and we weren't able to talk about some of the things that we have spoken of as a, as a theme for 2020. That is to say, our affection for one another. The way that we're supposed to consider one another. Uh, what makes the body of Christ so important? And that's something that I think for a lot of us, we see a lot of people in the world have zero appreciation for. You know, uh, we, we might meet somebody who says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you say, oh well, well what, you know, what church do you go to? Where, oh, well, I don't do that. Uh, as though one can be affectionate for Christ, but have no affection for his body. Uh, that's kind of crazy, if you think about it like that. And yet, that probably describes the majority of people who claim to be Christian today. People who say, I have an affection for Christ, but they can demonstrate no affection for the body of Christ. Jesus would make it clear that if we're going to love him, we have to love those who are in him as much as we would love him. We've been talking in Ephesians, in our study of Ephesians, Jesus spoke about how our relationships, uh, even our more intimate relationships in the home and at work, relationships that we might not think of in Christ. We are told by Jesus through Paul and Galatians, Ephesians, through Peter and 1 Peter, that the affection we're supposed to have in those relationships, that that affection is given because of Christ. It is as though it is for Christ. How much more so is our affection for one another? You know, we've been looking at passages that actually use the expression one another, and, and we're going to continue that this morning, but I was contemplating one of the, one of the more uh, thorough chapters that speaks about our relationship one another, and that is Romans chapter 14. And if you want to go over there with me in your Bibles, we're going to read here in just a moment as we talk about Romans chapter 14, but one of the passages that I've been dwelling on for a little while, thinking about its importance, is this one. Romans 14 and verse 19 which says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Well, you know, I, I've been thinking of that because of a lot of the circumstances in the world. I've been thinking of that because of a lot of things that, you know, we, we see passed around, particularly on the Internet. A lot of uh, things that people, brethren, have said to one another, and it has occurred to me that oftentimes what we're really seeing is the absence of a desire to pursue peace. To see peace as something that I want to achieve and to have. And in many ways, that's the context of Romans chapter 14. We're going to read a little bit, beginning at Romans chapter 14, verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. I want to pause for a second. Imagine you read that passage for the first time. Imagine you're not familiar with the scriptures, you're not familiar with the circumstance of Romans 14. And, and that would really strike you because you'd say, how can my food destroy somebody else? poisoning them or uh, some, some abstract idea like that. And yet what we're being given to understand is sometimes things that are very simple to our life can cause a great deal of damage to others. Paul's going to elaborate. We'll, we'll elaborate here in just a moment what it is that he's really saying. 
But he goes on in verse 16, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat nor meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because what he does not eat is from faith. For whatever is not from faith is of sin. Well, just to kind of elaborate for a moment, as Paul was talking about these things, there's two different contexts in which food was a matter of some great importance in the first century. Of course, particularly for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And what that language was all about was the idea that uh, that one might look upon Food as clean or unclean. Under the law of Moses, uh, there were certain meats you couldn't eat. You're probably familiar with that. You, could, you couldn't have bacon, pork. Uh, you couldn't have uh, anything uh, in the sea that wasn't, uh, didn't have scales. Uh, so you had lots of different things you were not permitted or allowed to eat. They were called unclean. And, and though Christ removed that, Acts chapter 10 tells us that very clearly, that uh, when Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean, he heard from heaven the voice tell him that, that all things had been cleansed. It must have been something, though, for many people to look upon a food they'd never eaten and try to eat that. On the other end of that spectrum was those things that had been sacrificed to idols, which might be an offense both to the Jew or the Gentile. The Gentile who once had served idols might have had a great deal of concern about eating things that had been sacrificed. Many of your uh, stores and businesses in that time frame uh, would sell food, but that food might have passed by a temple or been offered up in a temple first. And so it was the case that sometimes food was sold as something that had been offered to an idol. Now, Paul would make it clear, especially in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, a parallel chapter to Romans 14, that, that idols are nothing. They're not a real thing. And just because some food went by an idol, it's not contaminated or touched or affected in any way. It's, it's just what it is. It's just what it is. And yet, some felt uh, a great deal of concern about Partaking in something that maybe once they did think was something, or, or more so having been Jewish to think of something having come by an idol, and again, that sense of contamination. And they all understood that there were still people in the world, and this is kind of the interesting thing, that even a consideration for people in the world, that they didn't know that. And Paul would go on, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and even 10, to say to be careful how we present ourselves to the world. This is the context of pursuing peace and the things that edify. A sense that we are supposed to be mindful because what we have is something called liberty. And by the way, liberty is a little confusing because of the way we use the term in America. Uh, the idea of Christian liberty. It's very different than American liberty. American liberty is the freedom to do what you want to do. And whatever other people may be offended or upset by it, you're allowed to do it. Uh, we talk about the 
First Amendment, my right to say what I want to say. And if it offends somebody, I'm still allowed to say it. If it's upsetting, I can say it. And that's the mindset we have of liberty. Christian liberty is the other direction. Christian liberty is the liberty not to do something. The liberty that I am allowed to give up for somebody else. In other words, it's not the idea that I'm free to say whatever I want. Uh, Christian liberty is the idea that I am thinking about that I might be able to say something, but if I knew it offended or upset someone, Christian liberty is exercising restraint. Many times in the New Testament we're told that the liberty we have to do things is something we have to constantly handle with restraint. First Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul would say, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Likewise, he says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. Catch that? Your liberty is given to you for the purpose of serving one another. In all of these uh, circumstances, the language used speaks of those who are strong or weak. And, and I don't think it's talking about strong or weak faith. That is to say, the knowledge and behavior that comes from the Word of God that we're conducting. But instead, the concept of a conscience. And lots of us have, well, I should say all of us, have a conscience. Things that we don't feel good about, things that we do feel good about, things that, and, and again, these aren't matters of faith, and it has to be stipulated that that's the case, but... All of us have feelings about things. If I'm strong in this circumstance, it might mean that I don't feel or I don't have a concern about this. A man who is strong might say, you know what, I can eat bacon and I don't even think about it anymore. I know that Christ has delivered me. I put my conscience uh, uh, under, that you know, under that restraint. It's no longer effective to me because I'm going by faith and I'm not worried. Others might say, well, I know what's right or wrong. I know what is the truth, and yet still I feel some sense of error in this. And, and Paul would say, if somebody felt that way, they have to be careful because if they participate by violating their conscience, it may actually be a sin. In other words, if I'm doing something that I think is wrong, even if it's not wrong because I think it is wrong and I'm doing it, you can kind of see how that is. I'm doing something that could be counted to me as a sin. There's a main theme here, and really uh, everything I've talked about is actually just kind of trying to bring us to a main theme. It's the theme that I think all of us need to give a great deal of consideration to. It's the idea, excuse me, the idea that we need to think about each other. We need to be considerate for one another. And I think that's something we can all work on. It's not to say that, you know, I, I, eyewitness or others have witnessed some glaring error, but at the same time, I think everyone here has an opportunity to put one another in our mindset for the behavior we do. This is kind of the idea of what is spiritual maturity. Hebrews 10 and verse 24, uh, it would be said, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's, that's an important idea. And I want you to think about this for a second. As I said, this is really important. Do you see yourself as somebody who's spiritually matured? All of you think about that. Answer that question within yourself for a second. 
Are you somebody who is spiritually mature? Now, your first thought might be, well, I've been a Christian for years. I've spent a lot of time studying the Scriptures. I, I, you know, I, I've memorized uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. That'd be impressive. I'm, I have taught classes and things like that. And you might say uh, that those are the characteristics when I ask you, are you mature, you're thinking about. But that would not be accurate. Maturity is going to be, according to the Word of God, it's going to be defined by how much of your behavior and action, the things that you do every day, are considering others. And this is tremendous, because I see lots of people who think they're mature, who see themselves as mature, and yet their actions really aren't demonstrating that they think about how what they say and do, and that's going to be our big point here in a second, how what they say and do impacts those around them. This is what it means to be spiritually mature. This is the proof of your maturity. What, to what degree am I mindful? And by the way, the Word of God here, first of all, is directing us to our mindfulness of one another, but secondarily, also even our mindfulness to those in the world around us. And as I said, that really comes into two categories. First of all, how my actions affect others. And secondly, how my words affect others. And if you're going to define yourself as a spiritually mature person, those are the questions that you're asking yourself. Those are the things that you're measuring. That's what you're looking at when you think about what it is about. Or you might, going back to the very thing we talked about a moment ago, Romans chapter 14, speaking about those who, who have a substantive faith, it says, are you pursuing, and you say, well, I'm pursuing understanding, I'm pursuing you know, perfection, holiness. Are you pursuing peace and things that edify others? Let me, let me kind of focus in and ask you some hard questions. Uh, the application of these things, uh, just like any exercise, has to be a little bit painful. It's painful for me when I consider these questions. But the first thing I would say is, do you think about others when you say the things you say? Now, now where do you get opportunities to speak to people? At the store, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the home, in the family, in all the different places you are? Internet gives you a great deal of opportunity to say things. And the question is, am I thinking about others when I'm saying the things that I'm saying? What am I thinking about others? For example, one of the great problems, and, and this is something, I don't know, I, I say it like this, this is something that maybe comes along with just maturity in general, not just spiritual maturity, but maturity, is the concept of at what point are my opinions necessary? How often do you ask that whenever you're going to venture an opinion? You don't, like I said, we have lots of opportunities for opinions. I can tell people all the time what I think about every circumstance in the world, about politics, about religion, about history, about you know, uh, science, about sports teams, about cars. When do my opinions actually matter? You know, a lot of times the question isn't, when do my opinions matter for us? My question is, do I have an opinion? And the answer to that is always yes. I know sometimes people, you know, uh, venture opinions on things they don't even they don't really even have an opinion about because we think, well, I have an opportunity to to make my opinion known. Therefore, I, I believe it or not, I have an obligation to. Is that true? And the answer is obviously not. Maturity, and particularly spiritual maturity, is first of all, you might say, a discernment between when is my opinion important. 
And here's the answer to that. Your opinion isn't important when it edifies. That's pursuing edification. My opinion is important whenever it will do people good. Now, you might say at first, well, you know, the things I believe, they're the truth of God, and, and that matters, and that's important. And you're right. But, you know, even the Apostle Paul would demonstrate to us there were times where uh, he would, with the truth of God, handle it carefully in how he spoke to others because if they were unwilling to hear, Jesus himself would even tell us in Matthew chapter 7, don't throw your pearl before swine, to be careful with those things. When is your opinion valuable? That's an important question. A question that has taken me a long time to learn to ask. And by long time, I mean I still struggle with that. I was just talking to Wendy about this the other day, saying, you know, I uh, wanted to say something here, but it occurred to me all I'm really doing is just putting my opinion into the mix, not actually, not actually saying something that would be well-received or useful. It's still hard to figure that out. That is spiritual maturity. Number two, spiritual maturity. The difference between speaking in anger and speaking in love. Anger is an emotion. It's a work of the flesh. Uh, it doesn't mean it's always sinful because a lot of times things from the flesh, they have designed out it. They have a designed feature in our life. Uh, uh, be angry and do not sin gives us a sense that we can, uh, that anger itself isn't the sin. But at the same time, within just a few verses of that statement in Ephesians chapter 4, he would go on to say uh, that the idea is don't be angry. I've always thought James said it nicely when he talked about the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. Uh, there's the sense that we have. Do I speak out of anger or do I speak out of love? What is love? Love is not, not, not you know, acceptance, that's ridiculous. Not emotion, that's not accurate. Love is the desire for somebody else's best. The desire for the good things from them. If I'm going to speak in anger, I need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. That's an important point to consider with spiritual maturity. If I'm spiritually mature, anger directs none of my, none of my language. Third point, provoking wrath. Provoking wrath versus the provocation, and I left it blank here because of all the different things that we could say, provoking righteous conduct, provoking good works, provoking understanding. The provocation of wrath. It's interesting how it is. Uh, I've seen men that I would have thought were spiritually mature. I'm not speaking of anyone here, but, but sometimes I, you know, I, you know, I associate with other preachers and I'll see them say something usually on the internet and I know that it's going to lead to contention because it's a contentious subject. Was it necessary? No. But what they did was they opened a door to contention and sure enough, a line goes contention and they surprised. I don't know what happened. I don't know why these people are saying this. Well, you should have known that what you were doing was you were uh, making a provocation of wrath. I've told you the story before that one time I was driving and, and uh, pulled out and, and, you know, uh, right in front of somebody. And, what, you know, I really don't know for sure who was at fault, but, you know, I kind of got mad. And, you know, I kind of, you know, you know that one, right? I, none of you do. You don't do it. But, you know, I did that. And, and this guy got mad and he gave me an obscene gesture back. And, and you think, well, that was a sin. But you know what? I provoked him to it. You know why? Because, I, well, going back to the last step, I acted in anger. I acted with my emotions and not with my mind, and I provoked him to wrath. 
talking about not provoking our children to wrath right now in Ephesians, and the idea that a lot of times we say and do things that provoke others to wrath, and we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not angry, I'm not, I'm not the one who's sinning, but if I provoke others, I am spiritually immature. Now, it's right to provoke in them a desire to do what's right. It's right to provoke in them a desire to, to seeking these things. In Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul would say in verse 26, let's not become conceding, pro- conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, that's a one another passage, but it's a don't do. Don't provoke one another. Don't say things that you know are upsetting. Hold your words. Spiritual maturity, number one, is somebody who can control their mouth. And they think about the things they're going to say. And a lot of times we don't. Uh, that, that's something that falls on me very often. But it is a sign of just how it is that we are spiritually mature. Don't be conceited. You know, conceited is the idea of the person that thinks their opinion is worthwhile. Thinks that what they have to say needs to be said. Uh, and a lot of times that's what we're thinking. Oh, they need to hear what I have to say. And that conceit leads to a provocation that has no value. But what about the things that we do? You know, the passage we read earlier uh, was out of Hebrews chapter 10, where it spoke to the idea of uh, encouraging one another, edifying one another, uh, lifting each other up. The things that we were talking about just a moment ago of how it is that we lift each other up. That passage's context would go on to talk about the assembly with the saints. Let's talk about your deeds for a second. Spiritually mature people assemble with saints. Now, I want you to think about what I mean by that uh, for just a second as we consider that point. Because a lot of times we say, well, yeah, I I assemble with the saints because I want to worship God. Great. And that's a Bible 101, level one, I don't know how we want to describe this, uh, 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 bottom tier spiritual maturity. You understand God is owed the first day of the week. We come together for that point. But the 102, the, the second tier, the level 2 maturity is that you say, and I also appreciate and understand the idea that this helps other brethren understand that this is important. That's spiritual maturity. I see a lot of spiritually mature people and they'll say things like, you know, and by the way, spiritually mature people that had been members of the church for 10, 20, 30 years and they say, oh, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of service so I don't bother going anymore. Or, you know, I just, I just go because the, to worship God but, you know, everything else I just don't get anything out of. And the danger there is, is that reveals a dramatic immaturity when my actions in regards to the assembly of the saints is is because I'm thinking about me. Participation with the saints. Uh, I've often tried to say that the things that we try to do together, right now we're not getting to do anything together, and that's kind of frustrating. We're, we're at least doing things on the internet, and that's something. But we have opportunities to come together as groups and encourage each other in our, in our various times together. And, and you know, of course, we want to study the Word of God, but we also want to encourage each other. And lots of times people say, well, I don't get anything out of those studies. Maybe, maybe some of you have actually said that. I don't know that you have, but maybe you have. I don't get anything out of going over to that study. You know, I don't get anything about a, going to that uh, you know, time together with the others. That's a one-on-one kind of statement. That's an immaturity level statement. Because you're just saying, what is it about me? 
You know, I've often tried to encourage people to participate in things, you know, where we do group meetings or men's classes, lady classes, because somebody sat down and did a lot of work on that. You know, if it's, uh, I'll pick on Rob, uh, if Rob has sat down and he's done a lot of study, I'll bet he's put weeks of time and effort into a study, and when somebody chooses not to go, what if, what if everybody chose not to go? How would that impact Rob? Well, Rob's a strong guy, but let's say he wasn't. He might say, I'm never doing that again because of my immaturity. That's serious. And like I said, it's, it's not sinful to be immature, but if you want to answer the question and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a 102 kind of Christian, I'm a level 2 Christian, I'm a tier 2 Christian, where I've engaged my spiritual maturity, then you're not participating with other Christians because it's fun or it's not, or it's good or it's not, or, or things like that. You're participating because you say, hey, I know it's good for them, and that's what matters the most. My engagement with other Christians, that engagement, that relationship, a lot of times I'm there for them. And that's important. And that defines just how mature we are in Christ. It's not a sin to be immature, but maybe it's self-deceiving when I say, oh, I'm mature, I study all the time. In fact, I go to that Bible study and there's nothing they can say to me that I don't already know. You're not mature. You've got some growing you can do. And that's something to think about. Impact of perception. Uh, That speaks more to the world as much as anything, but whenever I think about the things that I do and I say, you know, how would others think about this? You know, a lot of times the 101 level is, is that a sin or not? Is it a sin or not if I do this thing or I do that thing? And you know what? That's the question we ask all the time. You know, by the way, mature Christians still have to ask themselves, is this a sin or not? But the Christian who's immature only asks that question. You get that? You understand that? The Christian who's immature only says, hey, is this right or wrong to do this? Is it allowed or not allowed for me to, uh, to participate, to go out, to do this thing, to do that thing? And they don't ask the second question, which is, how will this affect others? That's 102. That's level 2. That's tier 2. Christianity. When I say, it's not about whether or not this is a sin. Maybe I can do this thing. Maybe I can eat this meat. I can have this and it's not sinful. But what about others? How will others perceive this? Will will it cause somebody else to stumble? You know, there's a lot of things that we could do that might cause others to stumble that aren't sinful. And we're just not thinking about the fact that we're not asking the question, hey, what is this going to do to somebody else? All the things that we do, perhaps I should have brought this verse in just a second ago when we were talking about Assembly of the Saints in particular, but all the things that we do, we're supposed to be thinking of the exhortation that we give to each other, the encouragement that we give to one another. That's what it means to be spiritually mature, to be spiritually strong. The Apostle Paul would try to make it clear to us that that we need to be thoughtful of the fact that a lot of times we're hypocrites. And maybe every one of us can understand that. Um, I would suggest that probably there's not one of us, I know I'm on the list, that aren't hypocrites. From time to time at least. That we're often offended by something or upset by something that we ourselves are guilty of doing. True? I know it is for me. 
That there are things that people do that bother me that when I think it through or I think at what's the root of their behavior, I start to think, you know, I, wait a second, I've done something like that. I want you to think about every offense, uh, whether it's a brother and sister in Christ or even people in the world, every offense given to you, and I want you to relate that to the idea that it's very likely at some point you've given the same thing to someone else. That's an important point. Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, when we boast in the law, when we say, you know what, I, I do all these things, he said, well, do you actually dishonor God by breaking the law? In other words, are you guilty of the things that you hold others accountable for? We do. I get offended. Uh, Rob, I'm going to pick on you again. I get offended because Rob said something to me. And I'm not thinking about the fact that Rob, you know, Rob made some comment that, you know, Toyotas are the worst. Well, I mean, obviously we all know Toyotas are the best. But Rob says something and I get offended and I don't think about the 10,000 times that I've, uh, I've offended Craig because I've said something about the Cubs, you know. I asked Craig once, what's that symbol? And he was really upset. He said, that, don't you know that's the Cubs? Point is, though, um, I can't think of one offense I've ever received that I haven't given and here's the greater point to think about. You know, when we think about um, uh, the idea of, of, of being offended by the inconsideration of others, uh, what I most am guilty of inconsideration to is my inconsideration to God. In fact, I would tell you this. If you can't think of, when you look at the offenses you've given or you've received from others, if you can't understand that there's no offense you haven't given to God that he hasn't overlooked, then, then you might be even below 101 level in maturity. Because when you stood before God and made that confession that Jesus is Lord and a repentance of your sins, one of the implications of that statement was, God, I have offended you in every way possible. I have, I have murdered your son. I have uh, uh, committed adultery against your covenant. I have uh, cursed the blood of Christ. Those are all things that at some point we've stood guilty of. And can I say that anybody's murdered me? No. Or the things that we might go through that list and say, has that, has that actually happened to me? Oftentimes, like I said, the answer is no. And yet... And yet, when somebody does something far less, it's profound to understand that we take offense. If we were mature, let me put this out there for you to think about a second. If we were genuinely, spiritually mature, how often would you be offended? And the answer is, if I was genuinely, spiritually mature, I'd probably almost never be offended. And that's tough to consider. And as I said, this isn't a matter of saying that I, I, I'm evil because I'm immature. None of us have probably reached the level where I can say nothing ever bothers me anymore. Uh, I'm still bothered. I'm still upset. Things that happen, trivial things, nonsense things, that somebody pulls in front of me in the car and I'm still upset and my spiritual maturity is bubbling out. Because I'm not putting on the mind that I'm supposed to have. I have found, and you have found it too, that the Word of God would teach us that it's easy to forgive when we can appreciate that we're guilty 
of the saint. You know, uh, Stan brought up in, in our midweek study recently, Matthew 18, where the parable of the two servants, the unmerciful servant, comes up. That's a profound parable. Peter had asked about forgiveness, and he said, what if my brother keeps sinning against me? And, and Jesus' parable situation was, in effect, you keep sinning against God, and you need Him to forgive you. Don't, don't say to yourself, there comes a point when I don't have to forgive others. It's easier to forgive when you might have guilt of the same. Here's the irony about this. You don't even have to be guilty of the same. Jesus, the Bible says, came to earth to experience human life. Now, he never sinned. But just by the experience of being tempted, the Bible says he could understand why we do sin and he could be merciful. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us, but was in all ways tempted as we are. Do you get that? But without sin. Do you catch that? That it says that Jesus came to earth and he experienced the temptation of man so that he could be sympathetic to us. And he didn't sin. How much more sympathetic should I be to others because I do sin? It's easier to forgive when I can appreciate that I'm guilty. When I can appreciate that like that parable of the unmerciful servant, something greater than any wrong I perceived has been forgiven of me. Growing in spiritual maturity means it's important to know when to speak. Isn't that what we mentioned earlier when I, I was talking about James chapter 1? I'll read it again. James 1.19, brethren, he says, my beloved brethren, let every man, every one of us, let every single person, let all of us, be swift to hear, you know this, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I can, I can say fairly honestly that of all the regrets of experiences I've had when it came to whether I should speak or not speak, maybe one or two percent of the time it was I should have said something when I didn't, but most of the time it was when I said something and I shouldn't. That's the regret that I have. And finally, it's important to know what to say. And maybe therein lies one of the hardest things that we study to learn and to understand is, what is the right thing to say? And the Word of God repeatedly says, you know what the right thing to say is? Things that build people up with grace. Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. You know, it's interesting, corrupt word, I might at first think that that means the idea of, of vulgarity. You know, I'm cursing or I'm using profanity or I'm lying. There's a corrupt word. But you know, the idea of a corrupt word could be the idea of just a word that eats away at somebody. I like to call them zingers, you know. I came up with a good zinger and I could hit somebody with a zinger uh, that would just kind of uh, destroy them because of something that they said or did. There was a time where I thought that was actually a, a good thing. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Don't say the thing that just going to tear people apart. But what is good and necessary for edification? That it may impart grace to the hearers. Now think about that. That it imparts grace to the hearers. What is grace? Unmerited favor? Let your words be of such that what you're giving them is something they don't deserve. And suddenly that passage got a lot harder. Because it wasn't just like saying... Well, God bless you. It was saying the thing that they don't deserve to hear for what they've done or said. 
But you're giving them grace as God gave it to you. Let your speech be seasoned with, with grace, seasoned with salt, that you know how to answer everyone. You want to know how to answer people? Say the thing that is graceful, that is unmerited mercy. And you are a child of God. All of us want to grow into spiritual maturity, right? I know we do. It's not easy. And it takes time. And I'm still working on it. I think Paul was even describing it himself in Philippians, saying, I have not yet achieved it, that Paul was still working. I know he was, because if you remember in the book of Acts, whenever Paul was struck by the high priest, and he turned around and he says, you know, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And they said, that's the high priest you're talking to? He says, I shouldn't have said that. Even Paul slipped up from time to time. That's, that's a profound revelation in the Scripture there to see that moment and understand that all of us can be susceptible to weak moments, but we're all striving for maturity. And Let's take a second and pray to our Father for that very thing. Would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Holy God and Holy Father in Heaven, we love You and we thank You for the grace that You have given to us that has come through Your Word revealed to us of how your Son and our Savior died upon a cross so long ago, giving us an opportunity for a mercy none of us merited, none of us deserved. So that we can put on Christ, and being in Christ, we can give that same unmerited mercy and favor to others. Father, we all desire to be spiritually mature. We all want to grow. But we understand the cost of growth are growing pains. Uh, uh, Those struggles that we often have that bring us to difficulty. Father, we've already considered this morning about the trials that we may face. We've considered the trials your Son faced on our behalf. We who are your servants pledge that we promise we're going to work harder to be spiritually mature. We're going to strive more that our words and our deeds reflect your glory. Father, a new week is before us. When opportunities arise for us to give grace to others, help us to do it, Father. Help us not to revert to the things of the flesh, to be immature, to be the natural man that responds in anger or frustration or malice or with corrupt words that are meant to hurt, but instead help us to be the man of God, the woman of God, the one who seeks after you in all things. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for all the times we've been immature and the times we probably will still be immature. Forgive us of our sins, but in the understanding only as we forgive those who have sinned against us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Every time we're together, we, we talk about the opportunity to become a Christian, what you need to do to be saved, to believe, to confess, to repent. Talk a little bit about what that meant. Whenever we come to that point in our life when, when we are prepared to become a Christian, to become a child of God, it's acknowledging the, the sins that we've done. Even, even if we're not understanding entirely the weight of those sins, we're, we're laying them down at Christ, saying, I don't understand entirely that burden of sin, but here it is, and then baptized into Christ takes away those sins. As we mature in Christ, perhaps then it's, we become more and more aware of what sin costs. Hopefully that's true. As we walk in Christ, we all struggle, and we all stumble. We struggle with burdens that we're not meant to bear alone. That's why the Word of God tells us to bear each other's burdens. You're not meant to bear some burdens alone. You're to let the body of Christ help you. So every time we're together, we say, Hey, do you have a burden that's so much that you can't bear it? Let's help. Let's lift you up in prayer. Maybe it's more than prayer. Maybe you need some action on our part. Let's give it to you. Do you have sin that you can't overcome? 
You know, sometimes that, that's something you want to let people know about in a way that uh, uh, takes an accountability for sin. That's, that's profound. Maybe it's just something you need to talk about privately. You know, you can talk to us anytime. Maybe it's something that you need to do right now. If that's the case, you can. You can come up here and visit with me right now while we stand and we sing a song to encourage you.